0: My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here with my co-host, Katy Gurecki. How's it going? You know?
1: Uh um quarantine
2: uh twiddling my thumb. Um <laughs> watching reruns of RuPaul's Drag Race still. Uh and uh also watching new episodes,
3: because that's the thing that we do now. Okay. Um
2: Yeah. I'm contemplating the eternal weirdness that is, you know, 2020 with bangs.
0: I have been grading papers, lots and lots of papers. The semester started up again, so now I'm teaching again, and I both love and hate teaching. Would be so much better without all the grades. So for anybody who's in college or or school of any kind, you're like, I hate my teacher because he hates me because he's just grading. He doesn't hate you. Rating no, we sucks. just hate grading. Yeah. <laughs> it's not even
2: like I enjoy reading papers because I'm a giant nerd, and it's like, oh, cool ideas you had, thoughts, good job.
4: Yeah, the whole like
2: I have to quantify them, and like even when you're not like bringing them in relation to each other, just like the fact that like oh, somebody got a B versus somebody got a B plus, it's like it just I don't know.
0: Yeah, if I could just like write A on everything and be done, that would be so much better. Right. or dumb, just like you did, dumb
2: you dumb did role. acceptable, like and you <laughs> did well enough that this is this you've made progress. Like, yeah. Because, as data shows, grades don't actually motivate anybody.
0: But people like looking at them because they like numbers, and and you can make we like no, we like again. knowing that we're doing well. You know, it's a nice. Not,
2: it's like it's like it's like a, it's like a meaningless way of positioning yourself in the universe. Ultimately, is not a helpful metric of anything substantive. But if you know if if you're doing well, it makes you feel good. And I guess if you're not doing well. It probably doesn't.
0: And there's the transition, <laughs> <'Cause>, but, because, because, <laughs> well, no, because. So I'm, I've been doing a bunch of grading, and I've been working on my dissertation, and I had a whole bunch of quantifiable data that I had to talk about, and I inexplicably got really excited when I was working on a part of my paper, and I was like, "Ooh, I get to use a chart here! This is awesome!" And I was like talking about it on Facebook, and I, I don't know, I was pleased about weird, stupid stuff because I am a giant nerd. There's also charts and fun.
2: Yeah,
0: well, yeah, charts pie, pie charts. Pie charts. Are my, pie charts are my personal favorite. No, well, I hate pie charts. <laughs> that's <laughs> what I. Can't, but see, but I wrote a whole blog about it, about like how I was just like thinking about some of the stuff that that I was thinking about while I was working on the charts for my dissertation, and how I used to like actually make charts professionally, oddly enough. And then I was like, well, we should do a show on this. We should do a show on visualization of <laughs> data. So that's what we're going to talk about. It's it, it's it is a weird pop culture thing because I think we live in this world right now where charts are like super popular. They show up in like everything from USA Today to just like memes on like Facebook and Twitter and shit. And like, so I really just wanted to talk about charts and, and, you know, why people like them and what makes a good chart and a bad chart. So I invited people. Um, <laughs> I invited several people this time. Uh, well, First, I want to... I guess technically the first time you've been on the show, you were supposed to be on once before and technology dropped you off. So I'd like to welcome Andrew DeMond to the show.
5: Hey, Andrew. Hey, thank you for having me. Yeah. And (laughs) and we can hear you this time. This is awesome. (laughs) Perfect.
0: Andrew, I talked to you about this because you, well, you made several charts that like tell people what you do first so that I can, so that the chart thing will make sense.
5: So I am a comic scholar at the University of Waterloo, St. John's campus. And my large project is data driven. So rather than just reading comics, we gathered a whole bunch of really intense, focused data on those comics. And then we read comics. Mm-hmm.
0: And. So the project's larger than just the Twitter feed. But like you're probably most popularly known for the Twitter feed. Is that fair? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the, Claire, the Claremont Project has this Twitter feed where uh, Chris, Chris Claremont is a comic book writer. And this is not a comic book episode, but um, there you go. There's your, your weekly comic book content for, for the show. But Chris Claremont is a famous comic book writer who wrote X-Men for... 16 consecutive
5: years. 16 consecutive
0: years and some shoot off comics. But like for 16 years, he writes X-Men. So you took everything he did and dumped it into a database and you talk about it on on the Twitter feed and elsewhere in the project. But like you talk about it in the Twitter feed and then every once in a while on the Twitter feed, you will randomly say, let's look at all the times that Wolverine got punched versus when he got kicked versus whatever, or times when rogues cost ripped, rip. And you like sometimes publish these as charts and I care. <laughs> this excites <laughs> like me for weird geeky reasons. Um, are they more popular than other posts, or no?
5: I don't know. It's a really diverse group. Like we, we do have a good following in the data viz community at this point. Mm-hmm. Like I hear, I hear from them, and they're like, "This is cool. I can't wait to make charts out of this." Right, and that's that was one <laughs> of
0: my old fun. jobs. I used I used to work for a company that was famous for data visualization, and I worked with, among other people, Mike Higgins, who's also on the show today. Hey,
3: Mike. Hi there. Thanks for having me.
0: <laughs> so Mike said we used to work together. We went to college together, too. But we used to work together at a company called Maya Design, where, among other things, we made charts for a living for, well, I mean, you were there longer than me. I worked there for four and a half, four and a half years. Making charts um, and other stuff. My job was not simply making charts, but but you made charts for a long time there, and you've gone on to make charts for another company.
3: Yeah, so I, I mean, I guess technically, we actually made software to make charts. Like uh, we both worked on this uh, interactive visualization and collaboration tool that uh, mm-hmm. later became like a government DOD like software thing for the military. And then I started a company to do, uh, to do visualization online, uh, for nonprofits and the environmental community. Then we realized we couldn't make a lot of money doing that. Uh, so we shifted (laughs) over to the the media industry. Uh, and so we worked with the media industry for quite a while. Uh, and then we got bought by, uh, Nielsen, the, uh, media measurement company. You probably know them as the TV ratings people, but Mm -hmm. they measure a lot more stuff than that. And so now I am, uh, the uh principal tech strategist for media analytics at mm-hmm. Nielsen. So mm-hmm. that's my big title. Hmm. Uh, which and,
0: is making charts.
3: Well <laughs> yes, <laughs> but, but you can you you earn more money if you call it data science. So uh, uh, but, yeah. that's fancy <laughs> charts. It. Data science <laughs>
0: parenthes
1: making charts. Yeah.
0: Yep. <laughs> and also, at the at the last minute, we had a volunteer to be on the show. Uh, so yeah,
1: I, I kind of like volunteered once again yeah. to be on the show. Uh,
0: my wife, Stephanie, has been on the show many times Thanks before.
1: for letting people, me be on the show.
0: People recognize her voice. Um, Steph has an open invitation to just sort of yeah, be I'm, here because she lives in the house where my studio is. So she'll say, what are you doing today? And I tell her sometimes she's like, I want to do that one. So...
1: <laughs> yeah, and I feel like surprisingly, like I feel like I need to be around people, which is like for me weird. So this kind of like sort of fills that need. And
0: oh, you're talking about like in COVID times?
1: Yes, in COVID times. <laughs> yes, which is why I've been binging the the show Community because of the community aspect of that show. So this is plus I do research. Like I do use data in my research too. Yeah. So I'm not completely. I <laughs> yeah, but
0: the cognitive psychologist and I do
1: education research and we develop education technology. And so obviously we use, we um, assess that in classrooms with students and use that information to drive changes to further.
0: So every once in a while, when I need need to make a chart for a blog or for comment research and stuff, this has actually happened several times. I will like tabulate a bunch of data I'll go through and I'll just like make an Excel spreadsheet. And then I, I go over to Stephanie and I go, make this make sense, please. And I, you know, run, run, Run data analysis and she'll say, Well, what do you want me to do? And I said, I don't know, analyze it. And then she'll come up with something interesting. And then that sometimes works its way into my paper. Yeah,
1: I, I love data. <laughs> so, and and math and statistics, so
0: Yeah. Nerd. Um so
5: <laughs> So anyway
2: Are you aware of what show you host? Yeah, I
5: know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: But I mean, I I hope people can tell that I'm excited about this because you know we did so many shows about yeah let's talk about like superheroes or something and you know there's a, you know Andrew's here so there's it's a little bit of a tie in there we you know we talk about TV a lot Mike's here and again do you even work on the TV stuff technically you work for the TV people Mike but do you even do TV stuff
3: uh yeah I do and okay. I, I mean if we have a chance to talk about it uh we've got a we've got a really cool project that I think you would be interested in a apart from the charts, uh, but but we've been doing um, the, one of the things I'm working on a ton is called uh, inclusion analytics, where we're mm-hmm. trying to measure uh, diversity and representation of mm-hmm. TV programs, and then comparing that to like audience data, comparing that to uh, to, you know, the normal population and just seeing like, do people say like to see people who look like them on screen? Does it not mm-hmm. matter to them? What? How do the different networks, the different platforms, the different you know streaming services compare to each other in how good they are at, at different kinds of representation? So that's a that's a project I'm working on a lot right now, and uh, there are quite a few charts involved.
0: So that came up, and I'm going to bring Steph in here because that came up when when I was coming up with the idea for this episode. Um, and I was talking about just the way data is used, and I was looking at um I was looking at a chart by a, uh, or a chart an article with lots of charts by a woman named Amanda Shindra, and that's linked on the blog and in the show notes where she analyzed. Representations, male versus female rep- representations of comic book superheroes, um, over 50 years. Um, it's a really expensive project that was really interesting. And I was mm-hmm. talking with Stephanie about, I don't know what TV show we were talking about, but we were talking about numbers spoken lines by female characters versus male oh, characters.
1: Oh, cats. We were watching cats. Oh, so yeah. yeah mm-hmm. We were
0: watching. Yeah. We were watching the musical cats. Which is wonderful and delightful. And if you if you don't think so, you're <clears throat> wrong. It's okay. great. It's going to cause tension here. <laughs> Anyway, so we were watching cats with stuff like this is awful. And and okay, I know cats are awful. I, again, I, okay, we've we talked about that on the show before. I, I adore cats. I know it's not good. I've loved it since I was seven. I, it, it was never good. But, um, but Steph walked in while I was watching it, and she was like, how come the women never say anything? And I was like, but they do. But she wasn't noticing. At the part at which I, w- I was watching, it was a male solo, so she wasn't noticing anything. And then she was wondering what the, you know, percentage of spoken lines in the f- in the play, but I don't remember if I was watching the play version or the film version. I know I watched the play, the Broadway production, back-to-back with the film production one day, so I don't remember which you walked into. During- it was the Broadway production. I was watching the Broadway. Okay. So, um, Like She was wondering about the percentage and and she was like, well, you know, we could go through and count. And I was like, well, that is a thing people actually do. Uh, And I recommended that she try to do, she do a paper at PCA where she did a study like that. It's something that people do sometimes is they'll look at analytics Mm -hmm. of, You know, what is the gender representation based on literal speaking roles? Now, it's got a there's a problem with it because it's not always perfect. My example is always Little Mermaid, where the main female character has fewer lines in that movie than anybody else because the entire point of the movie is that she lost her voice. Right. So she, so she artificially has fewer lines, even though she's in like every scene because, but she's expressive obviously, but technically you can't count her lines because she'll end up with fewer than the male character because most of the movie is him saying, I don't know what you're saying and her trying to act it out. Right. So there, so there Mm -hmm. are, there are examples like that. But then I pointed at where Gina Davis, the actress basically, um, Oh, Eugene Davis Institute Institute for Gender and Media. She's basically started an academic project where she does this kind of research and she publishes her results um, frequently. So there is a thing there. And then the Davis Institute always has really interesting looking charts on it too. So, so this is the kind of, you know, data visualization, data representation stuff that just seems fascinating to me because I mean, it's weird. It's the, it's the intersection of pretty art and nerdy numbers and. If you're enough of a nerd in a very specific way, I think it becomes interesting and also useful. Because, like, you know, Steph, this is your actual job, right? Like, you do this kind of analytic data, and you could just dump it to a boring pie chart or something, I guess.
4: But <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, anyway, I mean, that's the kind of thing I was wondering from you, Steph. Because that's what Andrew does. Like, Andrew will take that kind of tabulated data and then... I made the Wolverine one up but I think you actually did do the rogue one right Andrew of the
5: yeah we did instances of um, clothing being torn as part of a broader coding because we know that that's a way that women are frequently sexualized in comics
0: right right and the, and then you presented the chart and I was like score awesome um <laughs> and, I, and I know I'm supposed to like really be excited when you post the sexy pictures of the half naked woman with the cool you know rogue is a sexy character in comics and but like that's not the part that I thought was cool I'd get a bar chart. Where, where you know where he where he showed visualization of her outfits over time from like 1985 through 1997. I was like, oh, that's that's the stuff right there. Um, but, so, Steph, but you are. What do you do when you make one?
1: Um, Well, I mean, I usually, we usually look at various types of data. Um, I don't know how relevant this is going to be to this discussion, but usually we look at just measures of learning, sort of just like very um, direct translation from what we're supposed to, we're trying to teach to what they're getting, they're gaining. So factual knowledge, then we try to get um, measures of more um, deeper learning. So transfer, can they apply what they learn to different situations? Can they apply it to like, like a month later, are they still going to remember this. So yeah, we we try to triangulate, I guess, and make sure that they're, you know, learning all, all these like different dimensions of of learning. And then if not, then obviously, we have to go in and try to
0: but you write like a 30-page paper about that, right? Yes. And then, well,
1: yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. And then
0: you put like a chart on it so that people actually pay attention to it. That was my point.
3: Yes. Many, many charts. <laughs> there, are, there are lots of charts. But
0: it's what grabs people's attention. Right? At, yes. yes.
3: You made a good point there. But like you make the chart to get people's attention. Right? I think when you're thinking about this chart making, um, you, you, kind of, you have to ask yourself a question, which is, okay, am... I'm trying to understand the data. Like I'm the scientist. I've got the data in front of me. I don't know what the patterns are. I don't know what the story is that I want to tell yet. And I've got to figure that out. So I'm going to use visualization to help me understand that data mm-hmm. and, and, and get that. Or do I know what the story is already? And now what I want to do is explain it to somebody else, right? Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. I think you, it's a different process, right? Because like the first one is the sort of exploratory visualization where you wanna try out you, you wanna look for correlations, you wanna down, you need to know. Right? Yeah, mm-hmm. you wanna look for structure in that data. And then maybe, you know, if you're if you're fancy like Steph, you know, you're probably actually gonna run statistical tests and things like that to see if the stuff you think you're seeing in the picture actually is borne out by the data. But then, like, There's a
0: t-tap. That's a word <laughs> right, that I know from living with Steph that I don't. Actually, I can't actually do by myself, yes. but, but it's a thing. Yeah,
3: yes. That, that, is, that, is, that is definitely a thing. Yep. And, uh, but, but then, you know, at some point, right, you're going to turn around. And this is especially true, like in the business world. And you're going to, you want to convince the pointy haired boss to invest in something, right? Or you want to, you want to make a point to the media industry that they should be like, maybe, hiring black producers cuz they don't have enough representation or or whatever right like so so now you want to tell a story and you want to punch it up but you also kind of want to make it simple for them because they aren't necessarily going to know how to read like a box and whisker diagram or a radar chart or something super complicated right like mm-hmm. so so it's got to be simple and it's got to be colorful and it's got to be like punchy so mm-hmm. I don't know. I think that's an important thing to, to ask yourself when you're thinking about how do I make this chart?
0: I, I agree. And I, and, and I think that you just made something I hadn't really thought about, but I think that's absolutely true there are the two, is the audience yourself or is the audience, you know, the audience, right? Like there, and, and those are, and i mean yes, I realized the audience might be, is your audience scientists, is your audience business people, is your audience just random readers of USA Today, is your audience my friends on Facebook, right? Like those are different things. But I think you're, that's a, that's a very key point. Like what is the purpose of, of the visualization, right? And, and it probably varies. Cause Steph, you, you would say you're making them for yourself. Like if you're, if you're doing or at least every time no, I've seen not, you do not necessarily analysis, you're doing it to figure out. Yeah,
1: yeah, I do it for myself. I make lots and lots of graphs as I'm looking at the data initially, mm-hmm. like Mike said, to try to understand the data for myself. But then ultimately, you're trying to tell a story with the data, right? You want to show the most important mm-hmm. visual representation of what the main point you're trying to make with your study like you design some great uh, software that helps students to integrate information on their own which students usually don't do because you know they they tend to read and just kind of like learn verbatim but um, so then you want to show like how great your product is with like soft with like a nice and micro- Mike's uh, point about sh- making it as simple as possible, I think is very important too. And that's kind of a mistake that I've made in the past is making kind of like complex interact- interactions shown on in graphs that people can't really easily understand. So yeah, you, it's kind of like, yeah, you want to present the data that shows your main point in the simplest way possible at the end. That's the. I- I think that's the ultimate goal but along the way like Mike said you do a lot of data
3: representation to
1: help you understand what's going on
3: if you want a tip uh, start with a scatter plot scatter plots are super useful and uh, really good for finding correlations uh, mm-hmm. and I guess also spurious correlations but yeah like if you're doing that data science work to figure stuff out just make shitloads of scatter plots and you will learn a hell of a lot really really fast
0: mm-hmm because you're looking for, you're looking for groupings. Is, which are, um, we should, I mean, before we go too far, I do want to make a note because, you know, both Mike and I have sort of made the joke already. And when we first started, Katya, you said, you know, I love pie charts. And we're like, yeah, pie charts. Now, again, Mike and Hi. I... It's know, like you,
2: the same reason I always pick Godzilla movies for
0: <laughs> the
4: film <laughs> thing.
2: It's not because they're actually useful. Uh-huh. because they're fun. Well,
0: but, but we should talk about them a little bit because, you know, Mike and I come from, I mean, we literally together, right? So we come from very much the same school, I guess, and we literally went to school together. So we we come from the same school of learning where it comes to that. But we should talk about why we don't like pie church and why... Because I do I, want to figure out, we don't like them, and yet they're probably one of the most popular charts that are used in media.
3: So, so 80% of why we don't like them is that we're snobs, right? And we definitely want to be cooler than you are. And uh, since normal people like pie charts, we, we can't like pie charts because they're just too popular, right? Mm. Uh, but no, I mean, pie charts are good for basically one thing, which is showing a simple proportionality, right? Like you've got one variable and you want to say X percent of this is accounted for by whatever, right? So my rule of thumb is if your pie chart has like essentially more than one wedge in it, you probably don't want to use a pie chart because people are kind of bad at interpreting angular distance. And you often see these pie charts with like, 20 slices in them. And you can't tell the relative sizes of those slices. So then they stick labels on them. So now what you've done is build a data table that's shaped in a circle, right? Like that's all you did. And it's hard to read and it's hard to understand. Uh, but, you know, people, people do like them. The other thing about pie charts is because they're so popular, they show up often, you see people doing really, I don't know how they manage this, but like they'll, they'll have pie charts where, you know, the percentages add up to more than a hundred percent or they're,
4: they're, they're
3: mislabeled so that the small slice has the big number. And you just, you, you it, it's, it's baffling. I, I, I literally don't know how people manage to do this because if you use software to build your thing, right? The software will stop you from making those obvious mistakes, but I guess people are hand drawing pie charts in PowerPoint or something. That's and- so
2: much work. <laughs> yeah.
1: What yeah did, why would yeah, you they do learn that. them? In, why? Is it, do they learn them in school and just keep using them? Like, what? <laughs> where's the origin of this <laughs> abomination?
0: I mean, they've always existed, but I re- I really think it's USA Today, right? Mm-hmm. Like USA Today yeah. mm-hmm. became super famous mm-hmm. in like the '80s for like. Suddenly, like USA Today really sort of popularized the chart. Oh,
1: maybe it's just a, sa- a space saving thing. Yeah.
0: And well, they, they were I mean they were a newspaper that suddenly just started. They started doing it on every issue. There was just some kind of mm-hmm. a bunch of charts on the front page of, you know, here's the stock market right now. Or here's what happened in the Super Bowl yesterday. Or here's sports. And they were just dumping these charts. On everywhere in four colors because it was pretty and it caught attention to them because nobody else was doing it. And I think that they're really, like like I said, they're easy to understand from a very basic level, right? Like I can, if, if chart only has four items, I can tell that this wedge is biggest and this wedge is smallest and that's fine. On the other hand, USA Today sort of quickly graduated away from doing that to doing, like, weird graphics. Like, I want to show the gross the gross GDP of two countries, so I'll have a little tiny dollar, giant dollar, right? Like, they started doing stuff like that, which kind of ultimately is more useful. Like, when we worked together, Steve Roth, who's a person that nobody knows except for me and Mike, but it's a guy that we used to work with, he used to say the reason our product was never going to have a pie chart application was because anything that you could represent with a pie chart could be better done with a stacked bar chart. And yeah. he's he's right. Like there's no, there's no reason for them to exist. Is there
2: then ever a good use for a pie chart other than making really bad jokes about pie?
0: Memes. Oh yeah. Oh my, my joke about pie was awesome. I have my, well, no, but yeah, yeah it, they work on memes. Yeah. They work, they, they, they work in, you know, they're really interesting for, it's sort of like, I think pie charts and Venn diagrams, right? Mm. Which Venn diagrams are not they're not quantitative. They're just sort of a yeah. it's a visualization that people like, and it's really easy to like sort of make one and then toss it on a meme on the internet, which is the only way that information means anything today. Is can you know can I can I tweet it? And I think that that's fun. You know, like I can toss this on Instagram and everybody gets it and everybody reshares it. And if I'm lo- and if I'm doing something just for likes, which is you know the currency of, of life today, that's useful, I guess.
3: I mean, I, I still think like. If you have a, if you have a single number, like a percentage and you want to present that percentage in a more visually interesting way than just writing 42% in big, bold type, a pie charts fine, <laughs> right? Like uh, you're still, you're still going to have to label it 42% in big, bold type, but you know, but you know they're look they're yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> just, just here's the. Promise me, never make a 3D pie chart. Oh,
0: no, those are,
3: those are <laughs> gross.
4: I don't like oh, those. Yeah. Those are, those are like a <laughs> spherical
1: chart.
0: <laughs> I did one of the graphic for this just because I knew. Uh. I, but I knew I wanted to. I mean, I was making a joke. I knew I was making fun of it when I did it. Um,
2: no, those are just annoying. Even I, who appreciates the pie chart for like whimsy reasons. No, those are just no.
0: Uh, Andrew, you, I mean, you, like I said, you've used them a lot on Claremont. Um The Claremont run is Andrew's project's Twitter feed um, that I will probably reference a couple of times. So, but you've used a lot of bar charts there. And why, why did you settle on that as like sort of the way to do it?
5: Oh man, that's, that's a tough question. I think I'll answer by apologizing in that I'm an English major. <laughs> so I think, So I'm bad at stats and I'm bad at data viz, but more importantly, I tend to think in terms of rhetoric Mm -hmm. because that's one of my own disciplines. So we go back to our Aristotle and we think about the rhetorical triangle, right? The idea Mm -hmm. of ethos, pathos, and logos. When we think of charts and graphs, we tend to think that they're an instrument of logos, right? But they're not. They're clearly all three. Uh, you've got ethos generating credibility, which is a thing that obviously they do just to their inclusion. Uh, I mean, I'm talking about comics. I'm a low life academic swindler, but I have a chart now, so
0: credibility. <laughs> you've made funny books respectable, is what you're
5: saying? Exactly. And then pathos. Like, I'm sure Mike can talk about this better than I can. But like, charts and graphs always lie. They can't not lie. That idea of truth is impossible. Even your choice of color is going to create pathos. It's going to impact someone mm-hmm. emotionally and color their reception of the data. So I try to think, keep things um, relatively simple. And I try to present the data in a way that is innocent but aesthetically pleasing. But I fully recognize that, again, I'm always distorting just through the simple act of using these things. Even though, of mm-hmm. course, like even when I interpret something, I'm distorting just as much when I write an essay. So it all kind of levels off, I guess.
3: Yeah, that, that distortion thing, though. I mean, I think like uh, like the word "distort" is um, you know it comes with a, a tone, right? Like it's it's kind yeah, of, true, a of a pejorative uh, word, right? And I think there's definitely there's there's information visualization mistakes you can make that distort the data in a way where you are clearly lying right like you are you are misrepresenting Mm -hmm. the truth of the data possibly accidentally but maybe deliberately right like uh to to tell a story that isn't supported by the data but then there's a different kind of distortion which Mm -hmm. i think is 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 emphasis right in 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 that you are trying to draw your audience's attention to what you b- believe is the significant or salient uh, feature uh, of the data that, that you want to shine a spotlight on. And I think that kind of distortion, if you will, is not only justified, but crucial, right? Uh, right. I, I, you can't, you can't communicate effectively if you're not doing that. Right.
5: You can't simplify.
2: Right. That's like the, I mean, that's the basis of communicating any kind of information at all. I think regardless of like method, it's mm-hmm. like, there, there's no such thing as like knowledge that can be shared among human beings that isn't in some way like subjective or I guess we could put use the word distorted because like A, we're limited human beings with limited faculties and limited understanding. So there's automatically some information lost there. And then I think that's right. It's like in order for something to make sense in a context in which we're sharing it, like emphasis is important. Like even when you're trying to be as objective as possible, there's still an, like you're, you're always interpreting something whenever you're sharing information at some level there's but there's better ways and worse ways of doing it that're more like more honest or not i mean I think that's like not i think that's like ninety percent of learning how to be a researcher is what are the better ways of interpreting information and what are the worst
5: ways right reducing the static
1: yeah and that's why you you can't just present data or the um, the chart alone, in my profession anyway, mm-hmm. um, you have to you have to accompany it with statistical tests and also error bars so you can interpret the data. You can't just say, this is greater than this. You have to say at a probability level of less than 0.001 or something like that. So you give them the yeah. full information. I
2: mean, even in English, oh like that's, that's right. the purpose of citation too. It's like so some, someone can go back and look at the original source material <laughs> and make their own judgment based off of
0: their information. Mm-hmm. and that's kind of one of the things that I'm wondering so, so if you go back to like our news by meme episode right which we did wow I was going to say we did I almost said like a couple of years ago it was at the very beginning of the, of the pandemic so, it was, was literally ago. less than a year yeah it, yeah, it was less <laughs> than a year ago But like like sometime in the 70s, we did this episode (laughs) of the show (laughs) um, where we talked about like how people get their news by a headline, right? You read the meme and news stories are often very clickbaity because they're trying to get you to come through. But most people just sort of read the headline and they move on. And I think a chart is a, yeah, I know, a a, a chart is a way of like sort of drawing some eyeballs to it. And so I'm looking at like Andrew's Project's Twitter feed, right? And the most recent post as of time of recording is about number of holdings in the WorldCat library of various trade paperbacks of X-Men comic books. Now, obviously, because of what your project is, you probably have a lot of geeky comic book fans who read it. There's nothing comic (laughs) booky about this whatsoever. This is literally Andrew geeking out about very specific, weird library data. (laughs) You know, it could have been anything. But like, it's pretty. So uh, like, I think that draws its attention to it. Right. So like, <laughs> and, and, and that goes to like, I, like I'm thinking of, um, I've seen people posting things as proof that, that I know are completely lies. Right. I've seen people posting Breitbart charts that say, well, this proves that COVID is a myth or this proves that that um, that systemic racism is a myth. Cops don't really shoot, you know, deep black people more than white people. I know because I've got this here chart, but it's, you know, it's not real. But they they believe it because, you know, someone t- put, someone spent the time to make a very colorful chart. I saw one where where a guy was like, well, you know, um, you know, 97% of white people are killed by black people and 97% of black people are killed by black people and he had a graph that showed that and I'm like that's not real and they're like how do you know and I'm like because the vast majority of people who are killed in America are literally killed by a member of their immediate family like wife, husband, Child, parent, who typically are of the same race, so therefore it can't be 97%. But like there are people who are, who have interracial families, but like I, like without looking it up, I know this chart's false. But they believed it and it just gets you know, all these forwards because chart, chart means real, you know, so mm-hmm. that's the ethos that Andrew's talking about. It's the lie. It's the lie of credibility because- It has
1: surface features of science, being scientific data.
5: Yes.
0: Yeah, it, well, because yep. science means graphic?
1: Yep, yeah. graphic, yep, that's now, a scientific thing. <laughs> <yeah>.
5: <laughs> now, there is another side to this, though. So my project is in the humanities, right? Mm-hmm. I have had direct, very powerful people that I wanted to like my project for, like, reasons uh, tell me that the reason they don't like my project is because it has quantitative data as if I've, like, betrayed the humanities oh, or something like yeah. that. Are numbers. Psychology
4: too, okay? mm.
5: Like there's yeah. a really rigorous divide between STEM and arts when it comes to research methodology. And like we have a mm-hmm. lot of data on even the difference between politics in STEM and arts, with STEM skewing far more right uh, and obviously humanity skewing far more left. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's mm-hmm. massive. And adopting the methodology of one, or even just incorporating the methodology of one when you're in the other, is like a huge challenge. It's a massive roadblock. and, and Anyone who's been in the academy knows that interdisciplinarity is a buzzword. Mm-hmm. Nobody actually <laughs> wants it. Nobody actually supports it.
2: I want it. That's why we have this show.
4: <laughs>
5: <laughs> this is another rant
2: of mine, but like interdisciplinary, like interdisciplinarity is an impossible promise because of the way, this is a probably a different episode, but like because of the way the academy is instructed, if you want to actually be interdisciplinary and actually be successful as a facu- as a faculty member in most universities, you essentially have to have two doctorates. Like, you have to be a mm-hmm. specialist in both fields. But I think, like, I i mean, I'm not so out there making charts, but I did a humanities dissertation on virtual reality and technology and, like, learned some programming as a, on the side because, of, like, this seems important, so I understand. But basically, like, I need to understand at least a baseline of technology in order to talk about this effectively. And even that, like, to me is, like, low-level interdisciplinarity. People look at me cross-eyed because I think that there is mm-hmm. this expectation that, like... Which, I, I mean... I think there's this is expectation when it, when you say that you're an interdisciplinary. It means that you have the same kind of specialty in every area you're writing about as someone who is an interdisciplinary scholar, which I think is mm-hmm. kind of a goofy way of looking at it. It's like, no, this is a different perspective on research than someone who's like special hyper specialized in one area. Which isn't sort a of judgment. It's not that one is worse than the other. Or one is inferior to the other. It's like one, in my mind, it's a, a difference between like one is a, is a practice of synthesis or interdisciplinarity, trying to like take knowledge from multiple fields and kind of build a narrative around it, build like what, it, what happens when you put these a conversation versus I'm going to be hyper focused on this specific area so that I can be as detailed as at like, uh, and as knowledgeable on this, this subdomain as I possibly can. Because I, I think ultimately like both of those practices like require one another to function. It just happens to be that
3: one
2: fits into the structure of the academy but
3: of the other. Welcome to my TED
4: Talk. Different <laughs> episodes. <laughs> so that was
3: good. It's, it's really interesting because uh, that company, Math and I, both worked for Maya Design way back when, um, mm-hmm. was, was started by three academics who came from different formal disciplines within Carnegie Mellon, mm-hmm. and I think they were dissatisfied I, in, in some ways by the quality of work that they could do Within mm-hmm. that structure, like, sure. right? and so they created a commercial entity, a company, right, where they could control the structure, and they really like, like, we pushed interdisciplinary work extremely hard in our uh, in our marketing and our advertising.
0: Sometimes when it wasn't even necessary, to be fair, like, yes, it was, yes. Just, it was just that was our that was our gimmick, right. Someone might hire us for something that was really a programming job, but we wanted to prove a point, so we would make Mm -hmm. it a a programming visual design humanities project because we were putting a point.
3: That that's definitely true, but uh, mm-hmm. but I also think that uh, they were kind of right, and and so. and I think that a lot of creativity comes from the collision of different ideas, right? mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. which means it's it's hard to do in a hyper specialized environment because you're kind of off on your own or you're with people who are kind of a lot like you mm-hmm. in their interests and their focus areas. And it's easier to do this stuff if you think about the team or the group as the primary entity, as opposed to the individual. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure. I don't know that the corporate world is better at this overall than academia. Oh, I doubt it is. I think the corporate world might be a little more flexible. So there might be pockets uh, where it's better uh, I don't know. I, don't know
0: that I buy that. And so here, and this is—I mean—I'll I'll tie it back together with charts again. <laughs> well, no, I think we are wrapping back in, into it. I think there are two corporate worlds. Mike has been lucky enough to, for the most part, only work in the good one, <laughs> 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 and Mike—Mike Mike will agree that Mike's—I mean. Mike's worked for three different companies, but effectively, you've had one job since you graduated from college. It just kind of your job. And and they all
1: came from academia, too, right?
0: Well, the company we worked for was spun out of academia. And then Mike spun. So that's
1: kind of a And then Mike spun
0: his job at that company off into a new company. And then that company got sold. So you've worked for three different places. But it's all still you're being like, like they're all. There's a clear line from one to another. It's not like you applied for another job, right? Yeah,
3: yeah. My 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 career goal is to never interview. I don't ever want to have to <laughs> go through the interview process. It's terrifying. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a lot easier to just start a company and sell the company than to have to do that like whiteboard voting exercise. Who wants to do that?
0: Yeah, right. So, yeah, so
4: that's so,
3: where I'm at right now. Right, and, <laughs> and so, and,
0: right. But so he's been, but he got. Lucky in that, again, you know, neither of us work there anymore, but like we do believe in the principles that were instilled on us in that, at that company, right? Which was specifically trying to do an interdisciplinary thing.
1: Yeah, you were psychology, math, and what were you? Well, the
0: three founders were a psychologist, a computer programmer, computer. and a visual designer. But like the people who worked there were massively varied in background, right? And they were specifically trying to do a thing, which is why we had these projects that did this. Whereas I've worked other places in the corporate world, which work much more like what the academia does, which is we are... I'm, I'm not going to dis companies that I've worked for, but I worked for one company that very much hated visual design and we made software for a living and they're like well no people should like us because we have the best algorithm and i would get very upset because no one can see the algorithm and my boss would be like but it's the best and i'd be like i know but like so we had no we had no visual design we had no user interface the user interface for our product was um was that you um took all your data and you typed it into an excel spreadsheet and then you fed the spreadsheet to the algorithm And that's how that's how we ran our our software. And he didn't need a visualization. So it's like, well, how do you how do you read this chart? And it's like, well, you hire a computer scientist or a mathematician to read the results to you and tell you what they mean. And this was their mentality. So this is the exact opposite. Like, from their world, everything is math, right? Like, we don't need visual design, we don't need interface design, we don't need psychology. Math is the only thing that matters. So it's the exact opposite of of where the good company was. Um, And then there's anything in between, right? And I think what happens in the places that like Andrew and Katya are talking about is I think creating a chart, right? Um, So Steph, you say you're going to, if you're doing data, you're going to do statistical analysis on it. You're going to sit there and you're going to crunch every number from, from a five-year study and so
1: and well, typically, that. I guess I'm different from what Mike does in that we generally have like a, a hypothesis and we test that that's true. Mm-hmm. So, so we're kind of like driven by that rather than bottom up, right? So, but, yeah.
0: but you're still but you're still crunching all, all of the data, right? And the chart, the in chart, doesn't have to be all that pretty; it just has to be pretty. Enough no, good enough
1: to be understandable. Right. Yes, mm-hmm. um, where and we're, APA format, right?
0: <laughs> Whereas, like in the in the humanities, a lot of what we do. And I think Andrew, she'll definitely agree with this because like, even though you have people pushing back against you and saying you shouldn't be using analytic data, what you're trying to prove is you're trying to prove it's useful and prove it's academically rigorous, right? Like, like it's a trick, right? Like we, we put a we toss a chart on there. It's a bar chart because look, I've done some real work, CCC. That's mm-hmm. like, that's essentially it's sleight of hand. And what's odd is you never have. The humanities person—I mean, I shouldn't say never—but this is why our bosses at at our former company were frustrated because in both of those situations, the statistics person who is working like Steph and the humanities person who is working like Andrew, both of you should have hired a visual designer to make a good chart. Like that would have been the smart thing to do, and it never happens. There's never that you know, like like Kathy said, it's interdisciplinary is sort of you know a buzzword. No one ever does it, and I and I wonder if that's sort of problem, right? Because charts do have multiple purposes. There is a research purpose. There's a very human driven like interaction purpose, but there's also an aesthetic purpose mm-hmm. and and they don't really cross over as much as they should.
2: That also makes me wonder, I think the observation that like, I won't go maybe the corporate world, we'll go with the non-academic world might be sure. maybe at least a little bit more open, if not always better to some of that. Because I think like what I'm thinking about, so, you know, I work in right now in product design. So we're I think in some ways, like interdisciplinarity is like more accepted, even if we don't use the terms, just because like, you know, when you're explaining something to a, like a client, you have to do all of those things. Like you have, you have to think about visual presentation and aesthetics and like, you have to make a presentation appealing. You have to, but it also has to be founded in data because it can't just be like made up coming out of nowhere. And it needs to have that rhetorical component because you're ultimately trying to convince whatever stakeholder you're talking to. So like, Mm -hmm. even if we're not necessarily talking about, oh, we do interdisciplinary work because like, it's a buzzword in, you know, in product design, the same way it is in academia. I think it's like, there's, there's an understanding that when you're working, especially on teams or across teams, you kind of need to do all of those things, especially with those teams. Like, I'm like liaising between an engineering team versus a creative team versus a research team and trying to get them to all speak the same language. That's inherently interdisciplinary. I wonder if that's kind of where there's, there's at least like, the potential for there to be more more flexibility is just because it's like the world is interdisciplinary in a way that the academy is not always mandated to be or at least we don't always acknowledge because we do there is this like fetishized thing around expertise and the idea that if you're an expert, you can only be an expert in one thing, which like in practice, even people I I know that are like hyper specialized in whatever their their discipline is, aren't experts on just one thing, right? In order to understand any subject, you have to develop expertise on multiple methods multiple subject areas Like even if there's one place that you're the strongest in it's not just like you know you could research bananas for the rest of your life and the only thing you know about is bananas you have to know about i don't know why bananas is coming in mind but that's just what's happening uh but you have to know about (laughs) the methods to research bananas you have to know about how to communicate the (laughs) method what's important about bananas i don't know
3: yeah i think that's very true and uh it kind of reminds me. Uh, my my dad told me something when I was a kid. He he sort of had a very, um, you know, you just made fun of me now because like I've had basically the same job for the past twenty years. which it's is you know, of you. Kind a of... fucking dream, dude. It jobs. I know, I <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 uh, yeah. It's been. I, I I agree with you. I'm very lucky. Uh, but but my dad had a lot of jobs. Right. He was uh, he was uh, a vice president in the cable TV business. He was general manager of an am radio station he taught broadcast journalism at a community college he was the it director for like the uh, health and human services department of the state of florida like lots of stuff that like it sounds like completely different stuff like why Mm -hmm. like how did you go from this to this to this to this and he told me once that really his his core skill, like the thing that he was good at that like set him apart was he could talk to the technical people and he could talk to the business people. He could talk to the engineers and he could talk to the sales guys, right? And he could translate for them. And if you can do that and do it well, you're always going to have a job in the corporate world because they have to, like, you have to do it, right? Like it's not optional. Just like I said, like, you know, you have to do that. And that's like, um, if you do like agile software development, um, there's a role called the product owner, Mm -hmm. right? And the, the product owner's whole job is to integrate all the different stakeholders, like the technical requirements and the sales requirements and the business this and that, and pull all that stuff together. And they can't afford to be an expert in probably any of it, right? Because like, you, because you can't be. But they have to know enough to collaborate effectively with all of those different people. I, I've, I've had CTO roles and tech lead roles and strategy roles and all of that stuff but the common denominator is again you have to be able to communicate with a lot of different people and to try to bring it back to uh, charts um, charts are a great way to communicate with Mm -hmm. them. They enhance your ability to communicate technical quantitative data, even if your audience is not an expert in that arena. And mm-hmm. so it's, you know, super valuable to be able to do that effectively. And I think if you've decided that you're not going to, for some reason, you're only hurting yourself and your organization, right? Like you're, you're basically saying, yeah. You know, I, I, I'm i going to build a table, but I've decided, for fun, not to use a saw or a hammer. <laughs> I, I'm like, like I'm going to make it extra challenging for myself, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm just going to leave tools on the table and not even pick them up. Yeah.
0: Which, I mean, to be fair, I mean, we, you even said it. Part of our not liking pie chart, the snobbery. Right. Like if the main goal is just basic communication of the simplest form of an idea, because one thing that I know all of us will agree on is, you know, what we want out of a good chart that has that's for public consumption is we want the simplest, easiest to read chart. We're trying to simplify a 30 page paper into something that gets people's eyeballs on it. And they say, oh, okay, I understand it. There is more coronavirus here than there is here because this dot is bigger, right? Like, that's that's what you're really trying to get. If 80% of coronavirus is here, 20% here, pie chart's great at that, right? So that's those tools, right? Like, you're just trying... Like, at some level, you're trying to communicate a complicated idea. Now, in reality the idea of 80% of coronavirus is in place A and 20% is in place B, the world is not that simple and it is probably much more complicated than that. And that's why you're supposed to read the 30 page paper. Not everybody's going to read the 30 page paper. So you need to be able to communicate the most important piece of this, Mm -hmm. you know, coronavirus bad, wear masks, you know, like that's what you're looking for. Right.
2: (laughs) Okay. I have a question. Being Not as as expert as in charts as as everyone literally on this call. I think, a what Matt is talking about, I think, is, is interesting, especially in light of like thinking about the example you were talking about earlier of like people like misusing charts for, uh, about like say police brutality. I think it was one of the examples you brought up. Yeah. Like, yeah. Is there a way, if, yeah. if, if except for the moment that a certain amount of the population is not going to read the whole thing and they're just going to get their news from headlines because we live in the mean the mean first? Mm-hmm. But like, is there a way to make a chart that in some way acknowledges? I guess like the ambiguity of data, or like the, basically what we we're talking about, like the distortion or the the subjectivity inherent in in representing data.
3: Yes, uh, though it's super hard because there's actually a lot of different kinds of ambiguity and uncertainty, gotcha. right? Like, so um, so if you're talking about quantitative uncertainty, right, and Steph can probably speak to this more authoritatively than I can, right, but you'll do a linear regression, right, mm-hmm. and the linear regression is going to have, you know, error bars on it, and you can say, look, uh, this variable accounts for, you know, this much of the predictive power, and you can say, you know, it's plus or minus whatever. It's kind of like the confidence intervals that you would get when you're doing uh, polling, right? Mm -hmm. Which you've probably seen a million times because we have just had an election and there have been a billion polls. Uh, So, you know, that kind of stuff you can visualize directly with stuff like box and whisker charts, or instead of drawing a line on the chart, you make the chart kind of fuzzy and you extrude that line a little bit and and, and use opacity and shading to kind of smear it out. Um, So you can do that kind of thing, right? But then there's the Deeper kinds of ambiguity, where it may be unclear what even are the right things to talk about and the right things to present mm-hmm. in the in in the chart itself. Uh, you know, I think earlier we had the example of gender representation, and, and, and you know, maybe you want to count the number of lines spoken by women in a particular script for a movie or something like that, but. Even that, there's lots and lots of questions if you dig into that. Like, are you talking about the representation of the character as a woman? Or are you talking about the identity of the uh, person who plays the character? Like, Bart Simpson is a boy on the Samson but I'm pretty sure he's voiced yeah, by, he them, by, right? One of them. So, mm-hmm. like, so which way do you count that? If you have right. a character with, uh, if you have a, a character or an actor with a more complex gender identity, mm-hmm. right? Like, do you just uh, lump them in, like, it, like, uh, or do you split it out into all the gender identities? Like, how do you do that? Yeah, so,
1: or, or, yeah. or the way you operationalize a specific variable, like if you're real? looking at the, like, I don't know how much like attention or how much. Um, What's what's the word for like how much of a presence a like men versus women have on screen? How do you measure that? Do you measure just by number of words? Do you measure it by screen screen time? time? Do you measure it by like how centered they are in the frame? There's all kinds of ways that you can choose to measure that, and you can like choose to present the specific operationalized variable that shows that proves like what you want to prove.
0: To that's all quantitative. None of that's qualitative, right? Right. I can make a film that. Features women heavily that might not be what you want representationally. The vast majority yeah. of pornography features far more women than men. Mm-hmm. but That's yep. not what people are looking for when they're talking about female representation. No, well. right. And, I mean, well, and I'm not even trying to dis pornography. I'm just saying that that's, right. it's it's a substantively different question. But certainly, there are more women on screen than men.
1: Right. And are you transparent? And do you report mm-hmm. that when you're reporting your data? Mm-hmm.
0: Because and, it's, it's and, and I don't know. Well, it's
1: because it's like there's like the the quantitative
2: aspect of it, which is basically like is there gender representation and what does that look like, and then there's the quantit like the qualitative aspect of that of like what is the quality and nature of that representation, which right. I mean, like I'm I'm sure there's a way to represent that in charts that someone that someone's aware of, but like in order to get to that level of nuance, you have to read the thirty six page paper,
0: and maybe you should, but I mean, like you can chart. Very specific qualitative var- variables, sure. but again, you don't want to make the chart too complex, right? Like you could, you could do a chart that does male gaze issues, right? If you came up with a quantitative way to measure it, or you could take the very simplistic Bechtel test, right? You can put a Bechtel test on a chart mm-hmm. and end up with misleading data, but data that can get a conversation started.
1: Yeah. In general, I would say that it's best to report as comprehensive data. Usually when we're trying to decide, should I pick this measure of learning, this measure of learning, this measure of learning, we often try to come up with a way to make composite of that that represents all of that to compare it. Because that's cherry picking of data is like one huge problem in misinterpreting results. And like there have been, there's a, um, a paper that won an award at, I think, AERA, uh, it, there was a a lawsuit against a school district who they accused of um, discriminating against black students. Mm-hmm. And the school district had data that they used to prove, in quotes, that they didn't do that. But then they uh, eventually the data was shared with uh, researchers and they found that they were actually like, picking certain data from that. And when they looked at the full data set, that it actually did prove that there was uh, discrimination. So that's that's kind of another aspect of, it, mm-hmm. of presenting, like how, how you know whether, yeah, you're, you're more, basically higher quality, more comprehensive data is the way to go in general.
5: I think we're actually modeling accidentally, (laughs) one of the ways that the the humanities do approach this right now, which is called mixed methods research Mm -hmm. methodology. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you do the data, but you also talk about it. So exactly as MAV did. You can point out that The Little Mermaid doesn't have a lot of lines. And then you can say, like you know, Mm -hmm. in an essay, probably because she doesn't talk for most of the movie. That's the premise of the movie. So you've contextualized the data. uh, And as a result of that, you're combining the qualitative and the quantitative in order to create a holistic perspective that can get the best out of both. Uh, Mm -hmm. And you don't just have to use the quantitative data as evidence. That's a huge misconception. You can use the quantitative data to build a context. You can use it to prompt further inquiry, as we've already talked about. Like It doesn't just have to be the, here, look, I've proven my point thing anymore. And the Bechdel test is a great example of that. Because as you said, the Bechdel test doesn't indicate quality representation of women. What it at indicates all. is yeah. a lack of quality representation of women mm-hmm. across a wide enough sample, right? right. Mm-hmm. And that's wow. a really big clue that, hey, something might be happening in this work of art that we're looking at with regards to the representation of women. So now that we know that there's you know an entry point, Let's talk about the ways women are represented here. It's been flagged, and the data can give you that flag.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a that's a hugely important point. I think that. Um Especially when you're speaking at scale, right? Like if you're going to analyze the media industry or something like that, and you've got hundreds or thousands, tens of thousands of individuals and works of art and stuff like that to to analyze and to discuss, you should start simple, right? Make your methodology hmm. very clear and very simple. It won't be perfect. There will be lots of edge cases you can point to where the methodology kind of gives the wrong answer but in the aggregate overall, it'll be more robust. It'll be a lot easier to implement. It'll be a ton easier for people to understand. And then once you have an idea kind of at that gross level of what's going on, then you can develop more complex methodologies. You can drill down, you can dig in, and you can say things like, well, okay, I get it that on our metric, this particular program does badly when it should do well because of X, Y, and Z. But mm-hmm. that's okay because the simple metric is still reliable yes. most of the time.
0: And I'm going to pick on the Bechdel test again, or reverse pick on it. I'm going to phrase it here, I guess. Um, that's where, <laughs> well, that's that's where it actually is good, right? Like the reason the Bechdel yeah. test is relevant is because as a metric. For the entertainment industry as a whole, for the film industry as a whole, you can build a chart where you count number of female characters versus um, number of conversations not regarding men. And you can make a two dimensional, it's three dimensional because they have to be named female characters. But like, you can make a. It's
2: like uh,
4: yeah.
0: yeah. But you can make a chart that like that shows that and shows that there are, that it's a relatively small. Percentage of the overall industry, so it's great to be a conversation start. It's great to be the thing that draws you into the thirty-page paper, right? Mm-hmm. Where it fails is because of the way people use charts and use simple metrics and stuff. Sort of in the memeified twenty-first century, you know, the world of the internet is people will go, "Well, this movie's not feminist because it fails the, the Bechdel test," and it's not uh, again gravity the film gravity fails the bechdel test famously Mm -hmm. it is a very feminist movie it's a movie with one real character in it who is female but it can't pass the bechdel test because there are no other characters there's two there's a male character character half the movie and but like there's only two characters in the movie There's a third character, he dies in the first 15 seconds. And then for the rest of the movie, and I'm sorry, spoiler for a movie that's like decades old, but one character dies in the first 15 seconds. And then for the rest of the movie, it's George Clooney and Sandra Bullock, and eventually just Sandra Bullock. She's the main character. And she's got no one else to talk to for most of the movie. That's the point of the movie. So, you know, is she a strong female character? Absolutely. But where does she end up on the chart? She ends up in the chart on the negative Bechdel test part, mm-hmm. but that's fine if you're looking at a trend across all movies because she's just an outlier. She's a weird, she's a weird noise in the trend that will mm-hmm. look across ten thousand movies. She doesn't matter, right? So, but people use charts wrong, right? So, it's even
3: yeah. Well, to your point, that people use charts wrong, it's even fine to see those outliers on the chart, right? Because like that gives you something to dig into, right? You, you know, like you do your scatter plot and what you're expecting is to see everything clustered along a nice line, like uh, diagonal line that goes from the bottom left-hand corner to the top right-hand corner. But then you see a bunch of stuff in that upper left quadrant and in that lower right quadrant and you see a club or a cluster and you say to yourself, Oh, that's weird. We should look at that, right? right. Like yeah. that's that's so valuable. You you want mm-hmm. to, you want to see that. The thing that uh the, the other thing people do that's annoying, right? <laughs> is, uh, in, instead of saying the Bechdel test proves that gravity is not feminist, they do the opposite and say gravity proves that the Bechdel test is useless, and we right. should. Right. Like, no. right? Uh, <laughs>
2: not that's how tools work. Well, that's exactly. Right. It's like it's, it's like a hammer, a hammer is useful until you need a screwdriver. Like these things are no hey, right. Exactly. Well, and I think that like the importance of like the cluster indicating like basically like the cluster of outliers basically like oh this is this is an area for future research. Like, I think that goes back to like Andrew's point about mixed, like mixed methods and the ways different ways you can use data. It's like that's an indication of like oh there's a research project here somewhere. We should look into this. Yeah. And, you know, and maybe what's to, in order to explain why that outlier is happening, I mean, I think Matt has illustrated this, like, to explain why gravity is an outlier, you have to get to the narrative explanation. Like, the best way to explain that might not be, like, a visualization, because you need to dig deeper into what it is, and then it becomes that, like, the interplay
0: of quantitative and qualitative explanation. Mm-hmm. Which is what makes for interesting papers, right? And it's that people don't read.
2: Everyone I, 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 Everyone yeah. just needs to get over themselves and hang out with people from other disciplines and just acknowledge that everyone's work is freaking cool yeah. and be okay and with it. Reading to read. I think if there is one thing we resolved today, it is that people need to read more damn. Like, just please read. <laughs> Please read more than the headlines.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, we, we touched on it briefly, but there is misrepresentation of that. Now there's certain, there's certain things that are just like outright lies. Like the chart that I was talking about where 97% yes, of white people. That's, cut yeah, white that's, people. that's step just,
3: number one. That's not, that's not true. <laughs> check your data. Someone <laughs>
0: just made a chart that said that. And like, yep.
2: Pro tip, it's okay, no citation go. to a reputable source. It's probably um, made of yeah. garbage, guys. And if there is a citation to a reputable check source, check this reputable The amount, re- the amount, I realize the FBI, like the amount of like headlines and also charts that I have seen that are just like reference, like very good data, actually. <laughs> but the actual, whatever they've explained has nothing to do with the data. I have a, I have a certain person in my, That's uh, what I was gonna my get larger next, familial <laughs> structure that I will name that has shared some of those things. And I'm sure it's one of those things. Like, I'm sure it's like it's a combination of like probably read the headline, didn't dig into it. And I think also like a lot of it is we don't necessarily all have the literacy required, both when it's coming to looking at charts and looking at data representations,
1: as well as evaluating sources. Like, yeah, I didn't realize that a different person actually wrote, that writes the headlines than mm-hmm. writes the actual article. Depends uh, on where,
0: but yes, frequently. Okay. That's it. Dep- what- Depends on the news source, but some, uh, there's uh, sometimes an author will, will title their own work. Sometimes there's a copywriter who does it.
1: I guess usually when I see an article on Facebook, it's designed to be clickbaity, and yes. yeah, especially if it's been shared, sort of mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> by definition, it's it's clickbaity. Yeah, um, there
0: are. I mean, I mean, peek behind the curtains at Vox Podcast, but probably I title more of our blogs. So, like we all sort of write an equal amount of blogs, but usually I write the titles. It's because my, know, I mean,
2: my titles are famously boring because I try and be. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I'm trying. And I mean, I'm, I'm literally trying to trick you into reading our, and listen yeah. to our show. So that's different
2: episode, but <laughs> so- SEO. <laughs> S- like, yeah. SEO is very useful. SEO is also, I am convinced contributing to the dumbing down of the internet. Right.
0: And, and, and I'm sorry, but you know, but still subscribe to us on iTunes or something. See, we're treating people um, anyway, into <laughs> and having
2: intellectual conversation, So hopefully oh. at least evens out. <laughs> but yeah.
0: But, it, but it, in addition to the, you know, to the, to the just plain out, flat out, We've lied, and again, sometimes people will cite stuff. And I've seen lots of charts where, like, according to Quinnipiac, and I'm like,
5: I read Quinnipiac, and it didn't say that. Like, literally, yeah. just oh, say, or, yeah. or,
0: or, famously, I mean, famously for somebody who I don't like, we, you know, there's that meme that goes around where, what well, Donald Trump said in a Time Magazine interview that if he ever ran for president, he'd do as a Republican. Republicans for stupid. He never said that. He said a lot of horrible stuff in, in Time Magazine interviews. Not that. Mm-hmm. That's just made up. But somebody, but somebody cites it as you know, January 1987. No, that's not true.
2: If it fits somebody's somebody's existing narrative of what they believe about the world, they're less likely to go look at it. Confirmation bias.
0: Right. But I don't want to make him look too good, so I will use him as my bad example, too. Um, because this recently came up with somebody I was sort of trying to argue with, explain things to, where people were like, well, I don't understand why black people hate Donald Trump, because, you know, he did more for black employment than anybody, any other president ever. And that's not really, and they showed me a chart, not really true. It's something he says. Now, what is true is that the black unemployment level was lower during Donald Trump. Than any other president in the history of since we've been scheduling it, that's true. But the raise during Trump's presidency was lower than the, than the raise during Obama's presidency. So you know the, the the differential was much bigger, and it crested in Trump's first year. So theoretically, the highest point ever has it. But uh, and 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 I was trying to, and I was trying to explain it to the guy, and I was like, okay, think of it this way: if you're watching football stats. And you have a guy who throws a 50 yard touchdown to a guy who catches the ball on the one yard line and gets tackled into the end zone. And you have a guy who throws a 50 yard touchdown that he threw Five yards and then the guy ran 45 yards, evaded 15 tackles and made it into the end zone by himself. Those both just show up as 50 yards, right? But like as a 50 yard reception for a touchdown. But the, but the cooler guy is the one who ran 45. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. people miss that because no one, no one looks at all the stats. They only look at the big number. And, and so you can have misleading data that. Trump's people, I don't know if Trump's even smart enough to understand it, but Trump's people certainly use that stat to their advantage a lot during his presidency, even after it was no longer true because there was a pandemic that everybody in the country lost their jobs regardless. But they used that stat. Constantly, because it was a feather, and you could make a misleading chart out of it.
5: Yeah, and it's a broader statistics thing as well, too. Yeah. Like my kid asks me, "What's the fastest animal?" Everybody says cheetah. Cheetah? No, or what distance? Yeah, you know I know. a cheetah can do a sprint, but then it'll die if you try to <laughs> run it <them up>. <laughs> a mile. <core laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly, and that's again where like a mixed methods thing can become really important. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, there are there are many there are many microscopic animals that are super fast. But their entire mm. lifespan has lived in like a, you know, six foot radius. <laughs>
2: like, like my, favorite, like my favorite articles recently is like the, there's like a very small like sand cat that's basically like half the size of a domestic shorthair. That's apparently the world's deadliest <laughs> animal because it, it I so guess
4: he, by volume.
2: Like, yeah, because it kills lots of tiny things. <laughs> like, I love the idea that a small, adorable thing is the world's biggest mass murder. It just, you know, it brings me some kind of demented and upsetting joy.
0: Yeah. Well, and I well, but see, and those are those are always like the fun charts for stuff like you know, pound for pound, the deadliest fighter of all time, and you know, it probably. And probably it's like some six-year-old girl in like uh, a kid's karate division because mm-hmm. pound for pound she's you know got a better record than say Mike Tyson, mm-hmm. right? Because it's
2: like the because
4: she's
0: six and tiny. <laughs> I, went, I went to a rock
2: climbing competition that was exactly that because like there was a mm-hmm. literally like. Nationally ranked men's, uh, rock climber that was like go- going to this like neighborhood regional competition that like he was probably, you know, overqualified for because it happened to be in his neighborhood and he was, they, they do this like ceremonial thing at the end where it's just like a fun, a fun like basically climbing competition against the people who like won the men's division, the women's division, and then the, the, the kids and teens division, you know the seven-year-old kid beat the pants off of these, like, very good rock climbers. Because, because like, the strength-weight ratio is insane.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, she's like,
0: I mean, cause, I mean, obviously, who can bench press more? The grown man. But, like, the differential right. between, like, a, a super in shaped seven-year-old is massive, right? They're superhuman if you... Actually multiplied it out and, and you can do stuff like that. And then you see, um, there's a place that I used to have bookmarked that has, you know, interesting chart correlations where you can just put in, you can put in a random variable and find something that is randomly just happens to be correlated to it with no causation whatsoever. It will be like, you know, US gross domestic product happens to be correlated with, you know, um, shoe size in Africa. Over this 10 year period. No reason. It just magically happened to be, re- to, to, to show up that way. But you can always prove, you know, prove in scare quotes things that seem really fanciful by having correlated data oh. that doesn't really work.
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, Math, I thought where you were going with that was. I wondered, like, there are certain pretty common bad visualization techniques that create the visual impression of wrongness in the data, even though the data isn't actually wrong. Like, um, like a really common example that we've probably all seen a hundred thousand times over the past year is you'll see a map that is showing, uh, republican and democratic voting right for the mm-hmm. country mm-hmm. and it will look bright red right because you, you know there will be little bits of blue here and there and huge swaths of red area and the natural because the entire
0: population are, of wyoming is seven yes yeah,
3: yes, yes. <laughs> the, natural, the natural conclusion is wow the united states of america is a very conservative very republican country and actually it's the opposite, right? Like, we're more Democratic than we are Republican, but your brain integrates those colors over the area of the map. And the area of the map, of course, is correlated with land area, Mm -hmm. not population. Mm -hmm. So it vastly overemphasizes the state of Wyoming relative to, say, the county of Los Angeles, even though the county of Los Angeles has a (laughs) zillion more people than the state of Wyoming, right? right? Like, And this happens all the time. A a similar issue is uh, in bar charts, people often clip the zero value off the bar chart and just scale it to the uh, the points that are actually displayed in the bar chart. So the x-axis is very narrow. And then mm-hmm. it will look like one bar is twice as tall as another bar, yeah. when in fact, yeah. they're actually very close together. That's why you need the error bars. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, yeah, Or, or
3: at mm-hmm. least a properly scaled x-axis, uh, y-axis, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Like or they show things in logarithmic scale that, that should be,
1: <laughs> yeah. Or, or I would think I would think color would also be something uh-huh. that could affect your interpretation of uh-huh. data. Like in your example, Mike, yeah. with the uh, showing that Republicans, like the image that Republicans have more, you know, just the fact that they're red, I would think adds to that <laughs> that problem with the relationship between area. And, red
0: always looks more important yeah. than any other thing. That, that is a visual design tip, and it makes it
3: <laughs> no, color color is a whole we could have a whole podcast on color, but you should invite mm-hmm. somebody uh who's more of an expert than you
1: yeah i, I do know that <laughs> that red does elicit like feelings of aggression, and like if your team is red, you're more likely to win a game given that you're similar uh similarly skilled and do
4: you,
1: do you know if that's culturally driven though Steph? no, I think it's it's universal, um, I think it's just people. From the researchers that I've heard talk about this, who actually study this sort of thing, they say that it's it's actually sort of it's it's innate. Well, they this is their they claim it's innate because it, it's the color of blood, and you're just sort of naturally repulsed by that color, but also. Somehow, you're also a tr- more attracted to people that wear that color. I don't really understand the the logic, the complete logic, but that's what I've heard people say.
5: Yeah, I believe it can be culturally affected as well. Yeah. There was a study that talked about um, that red thing not working in like one city because the city's soccer team wore blue. <laughs>
2: well, and, like, there's, like there's I forget the contract off of my head, but there's uh, there's like a, a national tradition where, like, I mean, in in most of the Western world uh like wedding dresses are traditionally white or some variant thereof. And there are, but there are parts of the world where red is actually more common. And so I wonder like mm-hmm. I mean there are I mean this is this is like a general sociological thing that we talk about in the humanities in terms of like cultural meaning, like where there are things that seem to be innate tendencies across cultures, but once you add on top of that, cultural tendencies and like learned behaviors aren't necessarily mm-hmm. consistent across different populations. So I wonder if color is one of those things where it's like a little bit of both where we have like an innate response. But then, in, depending on the cultural context, and particularly, I would imagine with like this situation, I think like sports is a really good example. Like mm-hmm. the specific response might be like moderated by what we've learned. This be really fascinating. We should do an episode on color.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, but, well, and also just I like think sampling, just because I think that's it got towards the end of that into like you know what I call ethnographic bias, right? Like you, like if you do your sample only on sports. Your assumption might be that it's universal, but it might be a sport thing that is universal across cultures that is not, you know, or what do you consider a sport? There's all kinds Mm -hmm. of there's all kinds of weird um, sampling. You know, I'm super into just because of my research, I'm super into like anthropological ideas of sex and gender Mm -hmm. that we know over the last decade or two that we've made ridiculously stupid assumptions based on our last (laughs) couple thousand years of anthropology based on the fact that like literally applied modern sociological heavily Christian, heavily male, heavily white assumptions to all of history and can came up with, with confirming results that like weren't accurate. And we just know that they're not accurate. Like if you just completely ignore a couple of things, Like, we just now read all these old studies completely differently, but a different study, a different topic.
2: So we've resolved, we've resolved nothing other than, uh, read things, (laughs) read things, (laughs) ask questions. And then read things again.
0: Yeah. Oh, my God. Read things. No, read things again is like the best advice we It's such a... I mean, that's... That's what crazy. Yeah. Is. And don't just start... Don't just stop at the chart. Like, charts, I think, are great because they grab your attention. If you see something that's interesting... I mean, even if you're not doing the research, like Mike's thing about the scatterplot, if you see a chart that gives you an interesting... You know, that makes you go, oh, that looks neat. Let me look into that. Actually, look into it. Don't just, I mean, sure, forward it on Facebook if you want, but like, I, I've learned so much about, uh, from random stuff. Like, um, I, I made this point, like, um, you know who has amazing, Chart visualizations, um, two companies, uh, I don't know if they do anymore, but like they, they used to. Pornhub used to publish a blog where they just like visualized data from their, from their searches that was like massively fascinating of just what fetishes are people into in random states or random places in the world. That like, it's not sexy, sexy, but it was just really interesting to look at data trends. And then the other one that did it was the, the dating site, OKCupid. They used to publish stuff
3: like that. They they wrote a book. Did you read their book?
0: Yeah, I um, I never read it, but I should get it. It's uh,
3: it's it's pretty good, but also really depressing. (laughs) Why? Well, it's just. from a data science perspective just let me say this if you are uh if you are a black woman on a dating uh, site um. it's not good and mm-hmm. it's just it's just like in case you wondered if there was racism in the world yes. i don't know maybe you were wondering uh, no. yes no. there is there is significant data to support that claim yeah, yeah. that part <laughs>
0: isn't <amazing. laughs> But they discovered that through just analysis of their own data mining, mm-hmm. which is just really fascinating. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, is good that you get out of this. But again, they wrote a whole book about it and they've published several papers on it. They didn't stop with here's a chart. Just look at this and be done. And I think so much of us do. So
2: because charts you know, are the basis of critical thinking, not the end goal of it. Right. Right.
0: So, so do some, do research, research it twice read everything you can. And then, Reading and then leave a
2: comment on Vox on
0: the
1: Podcast. <laughs> and then we're going to make an episode out of it, and then you're going to come on as guest. Oh, and, and the five-star reviews, And right? the five-star reviews.
0: Oh, we'll do yeah, five-star reviews. <laughs> uh, like and subscribe on YouTube. Hit a bell. There's a bell now.
1: Yeah, <laughs> except for AGA and MLA citation
2: formats.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is just getting weird. I want to thank our guests for joining us. <laughs> Stephanie, thanks for coming back. Okay, thanks for having me.
1: I enjoyed myself. Thank
0: you. Is there anything you'd like to talk about?
1: Um, well, no.
0: See, uh, now see, last time Steph was on the show, she yelled at me for not asking her. Yeah, (laughs) it was just like, you want
1: to be invited to a party even if you don't want to (laughs) go. Several
2: movies that cover, like, you never assume what your partner is going to answer. You always
3: ask, even though you know the answer.
0: I'm sure I saw that in a chart somewhere. Uh, Mike, what about you?
3: Well, I guess I'll plug that inclusion analytics project again, because I'm really (laughs) proud of it. I'll put a link, uh, so people can see it in the show notes. I will say, I think we can improve our information visualizations and I expect to in the coming year. And I'll also say that we are going to be hiring. Last year's work on this was really on a shoestring and, um, it's gotten really positive uh, feedback from the industry, which means we can invest in it. And so uh, we don't have those positions opened up quite yet, but we will soon. So if you want to work for a company that's doing cool media analysis uh, and working on these issues, uh, Nielsen's doing it. Uh, so give
0: us a call. I, I might. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
4: <out> <laughs> yeah.
0: So um t- turns out I, I, I do need a job. And I know a guy in that company.
5: Yeah. (laughs) So so anyway, um, uh, Andrew. You can find my terrible charts at uh, Claremont Run on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And if you do a cross-reference search with Tidy Tuesday, which is a, a data viz kind of weekly competition thing, you can see really good data visualization experts making beautiful charts uh, out of our data and sort of cutting me out of it. Uh, <laughs> other than that, um, our data set is available on www.claremontrun.com. Uh, and if you want to read my work that comes out of that data, you can literally just Google me, um, um, Andrew Demand, D-E-M-A-N, and you should find a bunch of stuff.
0: Cough Cough, and you are the host of Cough Cough. <laughs>
5: oh, Cough <laughs> Cough. <laughs> I am the host of a forthcoming podcast uh, on Excalibur called, um, oh, crap, I'm going to screw up. Oh, gosh, oh, golly, oh, wow.
0: It, yes, that's true, too. Yes, <laughs> we, we have a, Andrew and I have a new podcast that we're starting in... <laughs> Two weeks as this show, dro- or maybe a week. Damn it, I'm really horrible at this. That either, ju- either is starting next week or is about to start because um, we've already recorded it in podcast time travel, which the listener knows I hate. Um, but yeah, we're going to be on a show together. But you also have another show. Yes,
5: I have a podcast called Three Panel Contrast, mm-hmm. um, all in you know text form, no numbers in there, <laughs> um, which you can find on podcast places. Yep.
0: That's also linked in the show notes. And Katya.
2: Ah, uh, you can find me on the Instagram at just that nerd kid. Whenever I start posting.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, all of the places, always at Chris Maverick. You can follow the show in all those same places at Vox Popcast. You can also follow the show's blog at www.voxpopcast.com, where we talk about whatever we're going to be talking about next week, which I believe next week for us is Bridgerton. yeah <laughs> um, Yes. <laughs> which, it, which, it, which should be fun. And then we've got some other cool ideas coming up. We're doing a um, show coming up for Valentine's Day with Andrew and my other co-host on that show, and Anna Papard, all about sex and superhero comics. That's going to be fun. Come on. You clearly have thoughts about that. So, you know, go to the blog, find the post, give us your comments ahead of time so that we can talk about it on the show. We can work the things that you have to say into our comments on that particular episode and you can find out what else we're going to be talking about. And if you enjoy the show, and we certainly hope you do, then subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever the hell else you get podcasts from. And do us a favor, subscribe to our new YouTube channel. Like and subscribe and hit the bell. I made a, I made a joke about that earlier, but, you know, I don't really understand how YouTube works, but I know it's important to hit bells. Bells are important. I don't know. Um, the YouTube show has not only the audio content from this podcast, but visualizations and examples of the we're talking about, you can follow along and we need subscribers there and do us a favor, leave us a five-star review on Apple podcast or any other podcast service, but especially on Apple podcast that helps other people find the show, especially if you don't just leave us a five-star rating, but you leave us a five-star review that says a little something, something like here's a review that you can write today. I'm going to write it for you. You just say quirky little Marxist show charts are awesome. Just write that. Just write that down. Five stars. I want to see somebody write that, and I'll, I'll, I'll announce it to you on the show if you really do. What anyway, you, that would you, really help us a chart.
2: Out. Proving that we are a quirky little Marxist show, I would also appreciate that. That
4: would be
0: amazing. <laughs> the quirky little Marxist chart. <laughs> uh, I, would, I would like to thank Maximilian of Talk for Music for our epic theme song, Bill You Ever So More Epically, and playing This Out. I'd like to thank you at home for listening. I'd like to thank our guests for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Bye.